Konnichiwa, and welcome back to the Okie Show. I'm Donna. And I'm Brandon. And this is our monthly book club style podcast where we choose one Japanese movie to watch and discuss and do a little research on. Um, but before we get into this month's movie, I'm really excited about this month's movie. It's an animated movie called A Silent Voice. Uh, before we get into that, Brandon, what have you been watching lately? Well, recently I wrapped up the the previous year, as we all, well, I guess not everybody, because you may not follow the Gregorian calendar, but recently wrapped up 2022, which was a year that I spent trying to watch a lot of movies, and I did that. And so this year I've been kind of taking a different approach and being a little bit more thoughtful which with the movies that I'm watching. So I'm trying to go through what are considered some of the greatest movies of all time. That's subjective. I mean, to, depending on who you're asking, but there's some commonalities amongst a number of lists on the internet, and there's a number of those number one greatest movies that I've never seen. So I'm basing this off of a list on the website Letterboxd, is the top 250 narrative films of all time, and I just went back 100 or so and found all the ones that I had not watched or had not watched anytime recently and made a list. So I've been watching a lot of uh, older movies are the first ones on the list. I've recently watched Singing in the Rain, uh, which is a musical from the 50s that I really, really enjoyed. I have so many of the songs from that musical stuck in my head, I think almost every day since I've seen it. I've, <laughs> I mean, whether it be actually Singing in the Rain, Make Them Laugh, Early in the Morning has been probably the number one stuck in my head. Uh, it, it was just a, a real joy and treasure to watch. Also, I've been watching, or I also watched All About Eve was one I just recently finished. Uh, that was another really, really good one. Fun black and white, older picture that I really enjoyed. Lastly, I am trying to, we just, actually, we haven't even talked about it on the show. We got back from, uh, we, we went to Japan. Uh, oh, right, 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 yeah. <laughs> Don and I went to Japan. Let's talk about that in a minute, but um, I'd like to do that before we jump into the movie, if that's okay. Um, yeah. But I've been trying to, to pick up on more. I have a pretty big blind spot when it comes to animated series. Uh, that's, I, it's, a, it's a genre of media that I greatly enjoy, but I, I carve out so little time for television specifically. Uh, no judgment against it. It's just not always my cup of tea. And it's also a huge investment in my brain. Time is a very important thing to me. But anyway, trying to watch more animated series, especially ones that are in high regard. I have a number on my list. Gotta watch the Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood series. That's been on my list forever. But I'm going through right now. Um, Cowboy Bebop has been recommended as well. And it's a relatively short series, uh, 26 episodes. I'm almost finished with that. And it's really interesting because Cowboy Bebop's been recommended to me for, for quite a while now, both just in like through popular osmosis, but as well as like friends and family members have recommended it. And it is one of the coolest shows I've ever watched that has a story that I cannot sink my teeth into. I could not actually care about these characters other than the fact that they're so cool and the world is so cool. It's space cowboys. It's like old timey, not old timey, but like noir cyberpunk-esque space cowboys. And it, it is so interesting, but I am like 20 episodes in and I don't know what I'm missing, but I, I want more substance. And it's so, I, I don't know. Like the two main characters, I say is two-ish two main characters, really the whole main cast are so lovable, neat, interesting, and I wish I cared more. But I'll finish that up. I may watch the movie. I don't know where it takes place chronologically and maybe that'll clear things up for me, but. 
Also, I, I've been reading Watership Down uh, for the other podcast I do with Nick, uh, 2D or not 2D. Later this year, we're watching the film adaptation of Watership Down. And so I wanted to get the novel under my belt before we got there. And uh, I really enjoyed that. That was really good. Uh, so far, I, I haven't finished it. Maybe it's very bad, but it's about a bunch of cute little bunnies. How can you mm -hmm. not like it? That's that's it, really, as far as what I've been up to. What about you? I have been doing a lot of reading. I just finished a book called The Book of Everlasting Things. It was a really um, sensory heavy book in a very delightful way and I really enjoyed it. It was very long but it's a good book to, to really relax with. Take your time. And I am partway through looking for Jane um, and that's turning out to be really good. Quite the page turner. Very interesting. And I have been watching with Brandon uh, the Star Wars series Oh yeah. for our other podcast The Bargain Den um, and while we have have not gotten very far yet. I'm excited because while I think I've seen a lot of these movies before, I haven't seen them in years and years and years. And I'm excited to get back into the universe and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, I started to watch the uh, Megan and Harry docuseries mm. and didn't care for it that much. And I abandoned it. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Left it on the side of the road. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about Japan. Um, you know, pretty cool country. <laughs> pretty cool. We got to pretty go back. Cool. Got, got to go back and visit uh, for the first time in five years actually stay in the country for seven days we were there so it was a much shorter trip than our initial 2017 trip now uh, we have stopped over a couple times when flights are connecting there but i don't want us to accidentally fill this podcast with too much you know of ta just talking about our trip but what was like your favorite part of this trip to japan and then also like you can answer that then think on the next part but like what was something like did you have a good like a takeaway this time or any kind of like new life look on life or on japan Japan, this podcast. So, so some of my favorite stuff, we went to a lot of museums on this trip. And my favorite one was Team Lab in Tokyo, Team Lab Planets. And that was like this really awesome, if you if you haven't seen one of these or heard of them, um, there's a series of, they're typically infinity room based art exhibits that are interactive. Each one's different depending on which exhibition, I guess, that you go to. And uh, the one in Tokyo was just mind blowing. It was really touching and fun and beautiful and uh, just an amazing experience that as beautiful and gorgeous and Instagrammable as it is, you just can't capture it. Like, it's really very special. Um, what about you, Brandon? Uh, that was definitely, I mean, my favorite. Like, in terms of just, like, all in all, that was uh, the single most beautiful exhibit I've ever seen. But I would also very much like to recommend, if you are there, actually not all too far from uh, Team Labs, is a place called Small Worlds. And what Small Worlds is, is a, is a, is a miniature museum. And by miniature I don't mean like inch or two like these are like half an inch figures mostly built to scale and uh, it, it, we were there for hours and I really think we could have spent half a day or more just looking into the detail that went into some of these miniatures and um, I just thought it was gorgeous I thought it was super fun and neat and so much care and detail that I really filled my brain and scratched the itch of just those like remember those I spy books when we were kids oh yeah that's that's a really good comparison that's yeah. what 
they felt like. Uh, very, very cool. They also had a Neon Genesis Evangelion uh, exhibit there. That was super, super cool. So maybe we will post our pictures from that when we get to that episode in August and share and talk a little bit about that once you've watched the series and the movie. Yeah. Um. Can I can I add one real quick? Certainly. And then I would also, like I said, if you had any like takeaways from this trip, I'd love to, love I, to hear. I think this goes in a little bit because um, a lot of the a lot of the stuff we did was really not that different from doing stuff in the States or here in Bangkok. Um, you know, we went to lunch and we went to dinner and we went to bars and we rode the train. And, um, you know, like it was comforting to see I could navigate the train system and it wasn't that different from Bangkok's train system, which I imagine is not that different from, I don't know, California's train system. You know, like everyone's got public transportation and it works, right? But I guess it was just kind of neat to experience Japan as less of this totally foreign thing and more like something I could relate to, I mm. guess, especially having lived in a bigger city now to visit another big city in a different country from that perspective. Um, to that point, though, definitely cultural differences. And I really admire a lot of the cultural and especially like art and food cultural points of Japan. And so my other favorite thing that we did was the art aquarium exhibit in mm. Ginza. And it was just gorgeous because I don't really care that much for goldfish, but we've talked about goldfish before with Ponyo and how that's a very, it's become a Japanese art form to cultivate the best kind and most exotic or beautiful or perfect goldfish. And there's a lot of that in this exhibit, but there's also uh, integrations of other pieces of Japanese culture that were just really cool. And there was explanations of each that really tied the exhibit together as a living art exhibit with these fish that, you know, there was one section that was Ikebana, so flower arrangement, um, which is in itself an entire Japanese art form that people can spend their whole lives studying and perfecting, but it's integrated with these goldfish as this unique, new and beautiful, entirely separate sort of an art. And uh, that was just really cool. If, if you're in Tokyo and you have a few hours, that would be something worth seeing. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely, I would build in maybe an additional hour for the process of getting the ticket to it. It was a little bit of a challenge. That's true. Yeah. But otherwise, no, I, I, I like what you said there on that because I, I actually think that what one of my biggest takeaways from this trip was kind of the same almost. I, you know, like I mentioned, the first time we went to Japan was for our honeymoon in 2017. And I, you and I have been talking recently about how much of like a very life-changing experience that was. And before we went, I mean, I didn't really expect it to be anything less than life-changing, but I guess we're now, you know, living in Asia, living in Bangkok, I think in large part due to us making that choice and being able to to navigate our, our that two-week trip we took five years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a principle that we kind of went into with creating this podcast was not wanting to do anything around the nature of like fetishizing Japanese culture or anything like that. It's just something that was a, you know, it's we had such great respect from that trip and we wanted to continue having that respect from our home in Oklahoma. And it's it's been a, a very interesting five years for, for us in our lives. And I'm getting to the point now where I wouldn't, I would still not even feel comfortable saying like I am a beginner when it comes to Japanese culture. But I now, you know, I see names with especially in regards to film that I frequently recognize. You know, I have a mental map of Tokyo thanks to this recent trip. I have so much little facts and knowledge that you and I have like acquired over these five years and the last three doing this podcast, two and a half ish years. I just like I, I feel very happy and fortunate that I, you know, I never wanted to get to that point. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with loving a culture. Uh, and I don't know, it's not my place to say 
say when a when a point of appreciation becomes like disrespectful, but that's always been a fear of mine. And visiting it this time, I just I felt like a nice sense of like I'm not doing that. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I like you said, like I just was like I feel like I can kind of navigate this place. I definitely, I mean, I I feel a sense of you know this isn't my home. You know, this is not a place that I am like meant to be. But it's just a sense of how in awe and respect I have for forgetting to visit. Kind of all over the place with that idea. I hope that made sense. But I just it really kind of shone a light on our experience and journey through life in the last five years since we last visited, I guess. Yeah. And it was also really cool to be able to put some of our knowledge to practice that we've picked up. Um, that I, I Part of learning a language that's so important is the culture surrounding it and the reason that, you know, your native language is always going to be stronger than any other language is because you grow up in it. It's in your food. It's in your movies and your music. Like, you're in it. And so to, to be back in this thing that I'm trying to learn was so valuable. And you hear it all the time of like, oh, if you're learning a language, you have to go there. But to me, it's less about like, obviously putting the language to practice is very important, but it's also reinforcing all of those cultural touch points that build the foundation, I mm-hmm. think. So that was just, it was a great experience to go back having a much better foundation than the first time. All right. Plus it was just super neat. We had a really good time. It yeah. was uh, it was a ton of fun, and it made me excited to keep doing this podcast and and learning more, and and having that be a part of our life is continuing to learn about uh, Japan, Japanese culture, and and making it a part of our lives from our Oklahoma perspective. All right, that means I think we should jump in. Yeah. First things first, let's run through the plot of our January movie to kick off 2023. We watched A Silent Voice. Directed by Naoko Yamada. Yeah. 2016. Uh, I believe we said this at the end of our last episode, but we have made it a point to watch more movies that are by female Japanese directors because that's been a large blind spot in our movie viewing experience these last couple of years. So kicking things off with this 2016 feature. Yes, I'm going to really focus on our two main characters in part because there are a lot of characters and names that are hard for me to recall. So we'll focus there. I think we should also put a bit of a disclaimer. Again, for one, we are going to spoil this movie. So if you haven't seen it, and you want to before we talk about it, this is your last warning. Also, just as a heads up, this film uh, features a lot of things that could be upsetting or triggering for a lot of people, uh, such as bullying and suicide. So if those are things that are not things you wish to be ingesting, uh, just a heads up on that. So we begin the story with Shoya Ishida. He is an elementary school age boy. He's just living his life, having fun with his friends, and Everything kind of gets disrupted when a new girl shows up in their sixth grade class. Her name is Shoko Nishimiya. And Shoko and Shoya are sort of predestined to have a connection in a way. They're both nicknamed Sho for short. And uh, Shoko is seated right in front of Shoya. However, Shoya being a young lad who uh, is kind of a troublemaker and a class clown, he ends up bullying and making fun of Shoko a lot because she is hard of hearing. She's mostly deaf, um, but she ends up getting hearing aids at one point to help because no one in the class really speaks sign language and she's having trouble adjusting. It's becoming difficult for Shoya and Shoko's 
desk mate, I'll say, their neighboring uh, desk mate who has also been friends with Shoya for a long time. And it's becoming a strain in the classroom. This culminates after Shoya has ruined multiple pairs of Shoko's hearing aids, which prompted her mom to call the principal. The teacher calls out Shoya, and in the end, Shoya's mom, who's a hairdresser making a very meager wage, has to go apologize and pay back Shoko's mom. After which point, because the bullying is so bad and does not stop, Shoko ends up transferring schools. It's only years later, when they're both in about 11th grade, that Shoya uh, meets Shoko again, semi by chance because he is going to his sign language class. Ever since this whole incident, he has been ostracized by his peers because of his bullying nature, and he has been learning sign language and hopes to make amends with Shoko. Do we want to refer to them as the names that they were referred to mostly in the movie as Ishida and... I'm going with Shoya and Shoko because it's easier for me. Okay. But typically they are referred to with their last names or with um, like pet names, nicknames, friend names. We pick back up on Shoya's life and around the time that he attempts to jump off of a bridge to end his life where he is trying to make amends for his past misgivings. He has incredible anxiety around talking to people and generally just communicating in life. And this kind of comes to a point, like you said, where they meet back up and Shoya begins to try to atone for his sins. As Shoya and Shoko start to mend their relationship, a lot of stuff gets uncovered from their elementary school days. Shoya finds out that Shoko had been trying to be his friend. He didn't understand her language for signing, and so he didn't understand what she was trying to say. It ends up involving a lot of the other classmates from elementary school, many of whom are still around. They're in towns, and they might be at specialized, like, private high schools, but they end up kind of coming back together through various means, some manufactured and some kind of by chance, and Shoko and Shoya end up um, building a relationship, but they're both still very sad. They both harbor a lot of self-hatred, and it's something that they're each working through in their own ways, and that involves also these friends that are, some of them new, um, as Shoya gets out of his shell a little bit. Some of them old from elementary school and kind of rekindling these broken relationships. And some of it familial, as we find out that Shoko has a younger sister who becomes very integral in bringing everyone together. We end up getting to the point where Shoko's mother has forgiven Shoya and allows him to be in her daughter's life. There's still, however, a sadness for uh, Shoko, uh, feeling as though she is responsible for kind of fracturing this friend group. And after Shoya is allowed back into her life, she is not able to kind of communicate to him her feelings and feels at a very low point. She also attempts uh, to end her life in um, jumping from one of her balconies. However, Shoya is able to save her at the last moment just before then falling almost to his death as well and going into a coma. While he is out for the count, there's a lot more reckoning and relationship 
breaking and fixing going on in the background. But he makes a miraculous recovery after what seems like weeks and weeks. And when he does finally get the courage to return to school and face his classmates who who he had left on a bad foot at, at that time before he went into the hospital, um, they're all there for him and they support him and they make amends and everyone's happily ever after. I'm forgetting something, I'm sure. Here's the thing about this movie. I feel like that's a good place to kind of wrap it. I very much enjoyed this movie. I thought it was very, very good. It is a mess. Having had a number of days away from it now, I will say it is one of those movies I don't know that I ever want to watch again. I cried. You cried. If you watch it. The cats cried. The cats cried. If you watch it, you'll probably cry. It is a very honest representation, I think, of just how messy interpersonal relationships can be and tackles really, really heavy but specific struggles that I think a lot of people uh, go through. And my word, I mean, this movie had me like on the edge of my seat going like, where is this going to go? Like, is, is who is somebody going to die? Like there was adventure, there was comedy, there was suspense, there was drama, but, everything. But I don't think I ever want to watch it again. You know, I, I think I just will largely remember this as being emotional turmoil. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great way to describe it. And of course it is high school. And a lot of this is like them growing up and really figuring out how to navigate relationships and communication. And of course, a big point of that is how do you communicate with somebody who you don't share a language with? And it's a lot of emotional turmoil. That's the perfect way to describe it. And the bullying that is done uh, to Shoko is atrocious. I mean, the bullying done all around is awful, but my goodness, the scene wherever Shoya pulls her hearing aids out of her ears, I mean, it's just awful. It's just, I mean... It, it does a really good job to not make light of any of that, but it is really hard to watch. I, I had a really hard time watching that. It does well to not make light of it, but it also does really well to not, like do too much of glorifying or like, I don't know what exactly what to call it, but like there, there is a problem with it doesn't some doesn't turn it into like trauma porn or yeah. like glorifying the bullying, putting it on a pedestal. And that was something I really kind of struggled with is because Shoya is largely our main character through this. And he is not a good person. All, I mean, he, he ends up being a good person, but like he's a, he's a very complicated person. Let me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said not a good person. That's not at all what the takeaway from this is. He's not a person that's easy to like. And they, they do a great job making you go like, I cannot stand this dude. And so it's weird. It's weird to have a movie take the perspective of like, like here's how we're going to make you feel for a bully. We're going to make you like a bully. You know, part of me is like, that's not okay. But at the same time, it kind of is because it's like people, people have to, to make amends and do better in life. I don't know. There's just a lot to it. I'm tired even just talking about it. <laughs> yeah, we've watched we've watched a few heavy ones back to back to back in yeah. that way. But but even so, I mean like Tokyo Godfathers was heavy, but like I felt great after watching Tokyo Godfathers. Yeah, there was a definite lightness to that. This this was really heavy. Uh all the way through. Uh yeah. it had points of lightness, but that was light sprinkles comparatively. Um I guess, is there anything that you would like to 
point out or analyze or talk about in that way on this movie? Well, I think it really has a sort of interesting way of framing its characters in action and dialogue. The art direction, and I'm going to speak in a minute about the director, the way that this movie emphasizes not just the characters' faces, but I, you know, I think it has a great kind of comparison to the fact that a lot of the language that is spoken is through sign language. And a lot of times we focus not on characters' faces, but their hands or their shoulders or just it does an interesting way of showing you uncomfortable spaces that, I mean, um, Shoya, he struggles with looking at people in, in their eyes. That is a big element of him and his character. And I, I think a lot of times the shot composition does well to capture that. I thought that was really, really kind of beautiful. I also very much enjoyed his friend Nagatsuka. Nagatsuka is becomes uh, Shoya's one of his best friends, kind of the first people to not be aware of his past. And my goodness, he's often used as a comic relief, which is a, a thing straight to my heart. And uh, I've, I fell in love with this character. He was one of my favorites. He was hilarious. And he just so sweet. I don't know, just, just the embodiment of being a, a sweet, kind friend. Yeah, a, a kind soul, I'd say. What about you before we jump into stuff? Is there anything you want to kind of highlight? I thought the art for this was really beautiful. Everyone had very unique faces. I always love that in manga and in anime, even though there's a distinct style, each character also has a distinct style. Like Nagatsuka's face has a very different look and animation feel than Shoya's face or Shoko's face or either of their mom's faces. And everyone really feels very unique. I mean, beyond having like, oh, she has pink hair and she has super short hair and she has freckles. Like, I feel like those are some of the ways that anime really helps us separate people. But then it's also cool when it has that extra layer of an animation style that each person gets. I think that's really, really nice. And in general, I just thought the... Uh, the colors and the scenery were gorgeous throughout this. Oh, I also just want to add, sorry, the opening soundtrack to this after everything kind of kicks off at the very beginning is My Generation by The Who, which is like my favorite track that The Who has. Uh, I, I love it very much. And it feels weirdly almost out of place for the rest of the movie, but I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Uh, I was like, man, I haven't heard My Generation in a long time. Um, With that, let's talk about the director for a minute. Yeah, tell me, tell me all about her. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Naoko Yamana, <laughs> Yamada. I wanted to add an extra syllable, and I don't exactly know why. The director of A Silent Voice, Yamada, is a uh, very prominent director and by all means considered pretty uh, young as far as getting her start in the anime industry. She was born in the Kyoto Prefecture and also attended college or university there at the Kyoto University of the Arts. And within four years of graduating from college, she received her first directing opportunity with Kyoto Animation, uh, where she 
she has been up until 2021 or 2020, kind of depending on some of the reports, where she went and directed an animated series, the Haiki story for Science Saru, which I kind of looked a little bit into Science Saru, uh, S-A-R-U might be an acronym, um, and they have been putting out a lot of different style animation here in the last handful of years. Uh, recently, I watched Lou Over the Wall for 2D or not 2D, and they're responsible for putting that film out as well. So oh, go figure. They also did the most recent adaptation of the series Devil Man Cry Baby, which I enjoyed as well. To me, it kind of seems as though they're looking to branch out and kind of capture a new style of animation that's not as maybe in line with what would be considered traditional anime style. Um, so that's exciting for uh, Yamada's future. Um, but she kind of got her, uh, I guess I would be saying, cut her teeth on um, directing anime through a series called K-On, which follows a uh, band that's formed in a high school, an all-girl band. I gotta say, it just looks adorable. It looks like a really awesome, fun show that uh, I'd like to check out at some point because I really enjoyed so much of, of this this movie. I'm excited to, to look into and, and watch more of Yamada's work. Well, awesome. Um, it's, it's really exciting. It sounds like we've kind of stepped into Yamada's career fairly early in it, and this was a really good movie. I liked yeah. it a lot, so I'm I'm also excited to see more work from her. Yeah, she has a couple of new, uh, a short film coming out here this last year, 2022, that was Garden of Remembrance, that I would love to check out, and then a another full-length, I believe, called Kimi no Iro, that has yet to be determined as far as the date is concerned, but I read an interview that she gave to Letterboxd, actually, that she said, uh, and I quote, I've started to realize that until now, I've been focused on running forward. Now maybe I'm in a position where I need to start passing on what I've learned. At the same time, I do want to keep running, and I don't really want to look back. So I, I gathered from that, as well as some other tidbits from the interview itself, it seems as though there is a desire to, to have a reflection period coming up for Yamada. That's that's highly speculation, mm. but I don't know. I'm just curious as to what that means. And they have done a lot of work in the directorial department, but have also been a part of the actual animation process, keyframe editing uh, specifically. It seems like has been was kind of their entrance into Kyoto animation. I just think it's really impressive. Within four years, having graduated college, then jumping right into animating, and you know, we say getting in here kind of on the ground floor. I mean, been doing this for over 15 years now, so it, it feels new. It feels as though we're we're just now getting to see what what I I don't know what could be one of the bigger animators here in the future yeah anime directors I should say well that's that's what I have on Yamada well I would like to talk about Japanese sign language since that plays a big role in this movie and in Japan the the Japanese word for that is Nihon Shua where Nihon is Japan and Shua it's the sign for hand and the sign for language so that makes sense so mm. Japan hand language <laughs> And Nihon Shuwa is Japan's unofficial but most predominantly used sign language. It actually, there are multiple types of sign language that are used in Japan. It's kind of like how there's um, different dialects and ways to speak in in English or other languages as well, where, you know, you might call something pop and someone else might call something soda. Mm. 
except a little wider spread. I don't know if you've ever heard the term pidgin language, P-I-D-G-I-N. Sounds familiar, but, but please describe it. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like a simpler language, and a lot of times it's used for people who are talking in a second language. Um, it's like simplified. It uses easier, simpler grammar and syntax. Um, but basically, uh, some of the other sign languages you might see in Japan are like that, where they're a little more simplified and kind of a mix match of, of stuff where someone might kind of make up a sign to describe something that they don't necessarily know a sign for like that. Nihon Shua is used by nearly 57,000 native signers as their primary language, and there are a little over 300,000 deaf and hard of hearing people who are 18 or older in Japan as of 2008. So it's not all deaf or hard of hearing Japanese use Nihon Shua, but a good portion. And um, kind of an interesting thing, I'm sure you're, you've heard of like American Sign Language. Um, Nihon Shua, Japanese Sign Language, is it kind of functions differently than Japanese. It's not like a one-for-one -one translation. Like even, even the grammar and syntax is a little different. Like you might say the words in a different order. So, and like in American Sign Language, sometimes you might spell something out. So also in our show notes, I've included a chart where it has the hand signs for all of the Japanese characters. And if you have read, spent any time learning the Japanese alphabet, you know that there's three kanas or sets of characters. There's the kanji, which are the kind of pictorial symbols. And then there's the hiragana and the katakana, which each symbol represents a sound just like in our alphabet. Um, one kind of neat thing about Japanese sign language, there is no hiragana and katakana. You would use the same hand motion whether you're saying ah in hiragana or katakana. So that's kind of nice. You have one less alphabet to learn. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here going through this alphabet and it's very strange to be going through an alphabet for an alphabet that I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting to how how similar it is to American Sign Language in that way, like even some of the hand symbols, I think, are kind of similar for spelling or how they're translated from a written letter to a hand letter. And that's partly because of the origins of Japanese Sign Language, which is a relatively new language. In the late 1800s, the shogunate actually sent some samurai overseas into Europe to learn about how Europe was teaching deaf and blind students. Two samurai in particular are credited with bringing back this teaching and communicating system that becomes the foundation for um, Japanese education of deaf and hard of hearing people. Because before this, they just weren't educated. It was expected that you'd either get really good at reading lips by yourself or uh, become a farmhand and just do manual labor. And these two samurai were Yamao Yozo and Fukuzawa Yukichi. 
And they even started the first school for blind and deaf people in Japan. But that very quickly ran into trouble. In 1880, a decree banned signed instruction and deaf teachers in schools. Uh, this is like an international decree. And if you're interested in looking more into it, I have some show notes, but it gets into some tricky political stuff with alliances and agreements. And it's just a strange thing that happened. So just internationally deaf and hard of hearing people were banned or sorry, signed instruction. Signed and like, like teaching in sign language, teaching your class using sign language or having deaf teachers. Yes. My goodness. You know, <laughs> I, I, I it, keep going. Sorry. I, <laughs> <laughs> That's not that long ago. That's it's, just yeah, bananas. It's recent. It's kind of strange. Um, well, the good news is that doesn't last. Um, pretty quickly, Japan finds a way to skirt around the band so that they can still be within this alliance, um, but not adhere to that rule, uh, which is they start offering sign language as a subject. So it's not that they're teaching in sign. They're just teaching a foreign language, right? Or a language, I should say. So I'm... I'm I'm just curious. Here in the show notes, it says that a decree, the decree was in 1880, and then that they skirted around it in 1983. Yeah, yeah, it took a minute. So it took them a hundred years to to be able to teach in in public schools like that. <sighs> and a lot of this is like some legal jargon I'm not super familiar with. Um, I'm gonna so. I'm gonna have to look into that because I'm so. Do you know like you say it's international? Was this an was an Eastern thing? Uh, there was a conference in Milan, and I think it was called the Milan conference in Italy where this was agreed upon. Okay, yeah, the Second International Congress of Education, 1880 in September of 1880. Now, I didn't look too deeply into why this happened or what the specifics of it were, um, but it is a mystery. I don't personally understand how or why this happened. I'll have to look more into this and maybe I'll circle back because I'm thoroughly intrigued by all of this I, and I won't say any more because I don't want you to have to fact check anything. Sorry, I just, I don't know. I'm just very curious as to like their involvement in this and then as a global thing that there is this, I'm looking here at the document that this, at the uh, Milan conference and the headline is the Milan conference Alexander Graham Bell argues for a complete ban on sign language. Oh, well, there's your answer. Which, you can't sign over the phone. Yeah, so are you telling me the guy I'm who, a little joking, but maybe that is related. <laughs> I, I mean, let's continue. I'm sorry. This is just very fascinating to me and yeah. Yeah, so I have so many links in our show notes because some of this was just eye-opening. There's a lot to Japan's history and the broader history of deaf and hard of hearing people in the world um, because they've existed forever. And in fact, there's a deaf deity in Japan's creation story. It was the first god to be born to the two gods that represent the two Japanese islands. They did their ritual wrong to create gods. And so it came out as a leech with no bones. And it was also deaf. And in some versions, it has very large ears, ironically. That sounds amazing. And they cast it off and were like, never mind, we'll try again. 
send this one away. No, that's not amazing. But this leech baby turns into the god of like wealth and fishing and becomes a symbol for for success in these areas. So good on that god. But it's interesting because uh, even with this deaf deity being part of the creation story, and even with there being a history of uh, jobs and things for other disabilities in Japan, like blindness, there's really not a lot for deaf people. There's not a lot of history. There's, like I said, not really a long history of communication. There was no no uniform push to create a sign language for Japan until these samurai came back from Europe where they had seen people using it. That's also part of why it's a little bit different than spoken Japanese is because it's borrowing a lot from European sign languages. Now, that said, sign language was still not even legally acknowledged by Japan as a language until 2011. So this takes a long time to really hit the ground running, and a lot of groups had to get involved for equality. There was a court case where two deaf men were very unfairly tried because they couldn't get good representation or interpretations done for them. And fortunately, this seems like it's turning around somewhat. Like I said, uh, Japan has now acknowledged that Japanese sign language is a language legally. That is a step for whatever all that's worth. And there are other things Japan has done. They've actually broadcasted signed TV programs um, for their national TV channels. Recently, some of the princesses have taken up signing and will sign while they give their public speeches. Um, which is really cool to watch. And I've put in, again, lots of links that you should absolutely check out because it's really cool. One of them, though, is pertinent to our movie this month. There is a YouTube video by Deaf Japan TV that specifically goes into the signs and sign language used in the shape of voice or a silent voice. Mm. Um, I watched some of it and it's Really cool, because I think one of the really neat things about watching this movie, as you watch it, you kind of start picking up some of the signs anyway, because you see them often and you have the subtitles. And so it's it's really cool. And he also looks at how do you sign it in Japanese and how does that compare to American sign language? And sometimes they're the same. Sometimes it's the same sign or it's a very slightly different variation. Um, sometimes it's totally different, but it's really neat to watch that and kind of see where that comes into play in the movie that has taken really good care to have good, accurate Japanese sign language from everything I can see. So, Very yeah. cool. Love it. Great. Fantastic. Thank you for looking into all that. My pleasure. It was really, really cool to find all this out. And um, one last thing I wanted to touch on, because I kind of said it at the end, the uh, American title for this in English is a silent voice, but the Japanese title, which is Koe no Katachi, literally means the shape of voice. And when you watch the movie, it says in English, the title, the shape of voice. And so I'm very much getting those flipped around in my head. The shape of voice, a silent voice, you know, either will work. You know, it's so, it kind of bums me out a little bit because that really feels like one of those things that that's got to be an American producer somewhere, maybe at Netflix. This was a Netflix film that was like, well, but voice can't have shape. 
like just couldn't get their brain around it, even though it's like a very logical thing when you think about it in terms of it's kind of a literal way of describing sign language as well as, you know, the sound acoustics of voice. So it's just kind of sad. Like they were like, ah, people won't get it if it's a shape, the shape of voice. Or they wanted to really underline that it was someone who couldn't communicate. I don't know, you know, like, oh, it's a silent voice. She's, you know, cut off from her. Like, it does say a lot in that title, but it's a very different thing that it says, you know? I feel like it puts the emphasis on the wrong one, but I feel like that point could be argued either way. Well, very dope. Do you have a lesson for us this this month? Yeah, so this one is from you, Brandon. Thanks for recommending this phrase that we're going to say today. We're going to learn how to say be kind to those around you. Can sure. you tell us why you chose that? Don't bully. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say this all and then we're going to go through it and you can say it back. Okay. Okay. All together. It's mawari no hito ni yasashikushite kudasai. And that mawari is like surrounding. Mawari. No hito. No hito. Or that's like people surrounding you. Mawari no hito, which is to me in my head, I'm going to say like, it's like not having a mojito. Yeah. So yeah. the people of New Zealand are not having a mojito. Uh-huh. Mawari Where, no hito. Uh, hito is people. Got it. Ni. Ni. Yasashkute. Yasashkute. Uh-huh. Because yasashi is like easygoing or kind as an adjective. And then you kind of verbify it by changing the adjective E ending to a ku. Um, and then add that suru or shite. So, so would it be yasashi kute? Yasashi kushite? Yasashi <laughs> kushite. Yasashi kute. So you kind of drop yeah. the she? Uh, yeah, you can you can voice it a little stronger, but you don't want to put too much emphasis on the e because then that'll sound like the adjective. Got it. So yasashi kute. Kudasai. Kudasai. And you remember kudasai means please. It softens a request. And all together we've got mawari no hito ni yasashi kushite kudasai. Mura, Mawari no hito ni yasashikute kudasai. Yasashikushite? Yasashikushite? Uh-huh. Kudasai. Kudasai. Mawari no hito ni yasashikute kudasai. Yasashikushite. Yasashikushite. There you go. Hi. Uh, hi. So be kind to those around you. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode, our first episode of 2023. Coming in hot with a real sad one. Hopefully next month won't be as sad because next month, the month of February, we're going to be watching a little film that you know it. I'm not just pulling it up and stalling. It's uh, Shara. It's funny because you probably don't know you this film. You probably don't know it. Directed by Naomi Kawase. So excited for that. 2003. Um, we've got, guys, if you haven't checked out our social media, I'm sure Donald will say this, but you got to check out the schedule for this year's films. I am so excited for these 12 films of 2023. Also, just a quick shout out to Brandon who made the graphics for our schedule. I thought it turned out very nice. It's very clean and easy to find the movie that you want and what month we're doing it. Oh, that's very kind and sweet of you. Thank you. Um, stick around for Donna's fact check where they are going to go over all of 
the things that we said and tell you whether or not they are correct or incorrect to the best of our ability to keep us on the straight and narrow. Donna, I appreciate all the hard work you do here on the podcast and sticking out this recording. And thank you so much. We'll be back next month. Uh, matane. Matane. Hi, it's Donna, and I'm back with your fact check. First, Brandon talks about some of the songs from the movie Singing in the Rain. He calls one early in the morning, but he was likely referring to Good Morning. Next, when we talk about Tokyo, Brandon mentions an exhibit at Small Worlds for the popular anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. When last we talked about it on this show, I was unable to find the pronunciation, but while we were at the exhibit, Systems on Loop announced Evangelion with a hard G. So that's what I'll go with for now, at least until we watch the movie for our August episode. Then when Brandon tells us about director Naoko Yamada, he mentions her first directorial work with Science Saru. The movie is pronounced Heike story, or Heike Monogatari. And to our question whether SARU was an acronym, even though it's stylized in all caps in the English version, it's just the word for monkey. According to AnimeTrends.net, the name is meant to mean science monkey to reflect their quote, creativity, intuition, art, enjoying moments, and being playful. Unquote. And the upcoming movie from Yamada is pronounced Kimi no Iro, which means your color. Then Brandon says Yamada started out doing keyframe editing for Kyoto Animation. She actually started with betweening or tweening, which is when the animator fills in the image to make an action look like a single motion instead of multiple frames. Later, she would become Key Animator, who is in charge of establishing the characters and how they look and move. Also, Brandon was spot on with his use of the idiom cutting your teeth, which according to Collins Dictionary means, quote, that is how, when, or where they began their career and learned some of their skills, unquote. Next, when I talk about Japanese sign language, I mention the role of deafness in Japan's creation story. If you'd like to learn more about the deaf Japanese god, he is the first son of the deities Izanami and Izanagi, and his name is Ebisu. He's one of the Shichifukujin, or seven gods of luck, and he's the patron of fishermen and tradesmen. To be fair, he wasn't born a leech, but he had no bones like a leech. He would later grow legs and bones. That's all for the fact check. Remember to tell us what you think or to recommend a movie. You can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at Show. That's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. You can also send emails to okieokieshow at gmail.com. Next month, our movie is Shara, or Shara Soju, 
a 2003 Japanese drama film directed by Naomi Kawase. It's available on YouTube in Japanese with English closed captioning in the options menu. Domo arigato gozaimasu! Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, kiotsukete!